We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. The passage of scripture that Andrew just read to us, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, is tough. It's a blistering exposure of the disciples. I don't know of any place in Scripture where the disciples are held up under such intense scrutiny for being absolute failures. The disciples are revealed in this passage as spiritually bankrupt. They're selfish, they're proud. And as we walk through this passage, for some people, this is going to be very tough. Because it could appear that focusing in on this passage, we Christians are just a bunch of negative Nellies. I mean, but, but here's the deal. The thing that separates authentic Christianity from civic religion, from, from false Christianity, is this issue. It is the steadfast insistence that there is wickedness in our hearts. That we are far more wicked, as one pastor says, named Tim Keller. We're far more wicked than we could ever imagine, even at our very best. And, and we must take the mo- these moments throughout our Christian life. We, there must be these seasons where we really come to grips with that. Look at it this way. For Christians, when we face up to our sin... And we confess our sin. It's it's not that we're groveling in it. It, It's that we're doing the only thing possible to be free of it. We're owning up to the reality of the darkness in our own hearts. And we're moving from a sorrow into repentance. Now, I said last week, repentance is the beginning and the condition of the truly Christian life. The only entrance into Christianity goes through repentance. And then as you continue in the Christian life, that doorway follows you everywhere you go. And you must continually re-enter it in order to really embrace the authentic Christian life. Now, today is the second Sunday of the season of Lent. Lent, the 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to Easter. It all began Ash Wednesday This year was February 17th, 10 days ago, and it goes all the way through to Holy Saturday, the day right before Easter. Lent, we've got to realize, is this long, slow period of sustained preparation for Easter. What kind of preparation? Repentance. That's the season of Lent. No repentance, no Lent. You can do all of these external rituals. You can fast, you can read scripture, you can pray, you can get ashes on your head. But if you do not go through the deep, dark valley of repentance, you're just playing a game. Lent is the season of repentance. And that's why the church, in her great wisdom for more than 1,900 years, has called Christians to Lent. One theologian, Alexander Schmemann, he put it this way. Lent is a school of repentance 
to which every Christian must go every year in order to go on in the Christian faith. Now, the title and the subject of tonight's message is the need for repentance. Next week will be the call to repentance. Robert is going to be preaching next week. And then the following week will be the joy of repentance, finally. But it's necessary that we don't get there too quickly or we shortchange what Lynn is all about and what we really need in our souls. It's absolutely necessary that we go on a journey, that we don't get to our destination too fast, that we go on this physical and spiritual journey to Easter. Now, I'm just warning you, this is a long journey. And, and it's a very somber journey. You know, Robert is doing a great job last week and this week of, of with the music setting the right atmosphere for Lent. But like I said, Lent is a school of repentance that every one of us must go to in order to move on in the Christian life. So now the way I'm going to teach through Luke chapter nine, verses 37 through 50 is we're just going to take it scene by scene. There's four scenes and each one of these scenes focuses in on the disciples. We've been actually walking our way through Luke. And you're going to notice that for the first time in Luke, the focus is not on Jesus. This is the first time that the focus is on the disciples. And what it reveals, like I said, is blistering. What you're going to see, I think, if, you, if we each really listen, because our job is not just to look at the disciples, but our job is to let Scripture be a scalpel in their own hearts. Now, your job as we walk through and look at the disciples is not to look out at the, at the world through the lens of Scripture. Your job is to let Scripture tonight be a mirror that shows you what's really going on in your own heart. Luke chapter 9, let's begin in verse 37 through 43. It's the story of this um, demonized boy. But Look at the first phrase, on the next day. In other words, Luke is deliberately tying in what happens with the demonized boy with what just happened. He's using a temporal identifying phrase. He's saying this happened immediately after what I just told you about. And what had he just told them about? Well, several weeks ago, we looked at this. He had just told them about this incredible mountaintop experience, literally and figuratively. The disciples were up on this mountain with Jesus, and Jesus gave them just a taste of what he will look like when he comes back. And they heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my son, my beloved one, listen to him. And then on the very next day, after that profound spiritual experience, it says, they come down from the mountain, from this great experience, and suddenly they encounter this man who has an only child in, in a desperate situation. He's possessed by an evil spirit, and it causes him to go into convulsions, and he's bruised, and, and Jesus' reply to this man's request is critical for understanding what Luke is trying to show us about the disciples. Notice his reply in verse 41. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? 
Now, what we need to see is that Jesus's reply indicates something is wrong with the disciples. Look at it this way. The faithless and twisted generation, Jesus has just indicated they came down from the mountain. And as we go on through the chapter, you'll see the only people he ever talks about in the chapter are the disciples. So suddenly, Jesus is lumping the disciples in with the wider culture. They did have this incredible mountaintop spiritual experience, but now down at the base of the mountain, they're revealed for who they are. They are just like everyone else. They are just as twisted and just as faithless as the surrounding culture. You see this when you compare verse 40, where the father begged the disciples to cast out the demon. And then in the very first verse of the chapter, look at chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons. Luke told us, in other words, just 39 verses before this, these guys have the capability to do what they've just failed to do. They've been given the ability to do this. Clearly, Luke is saying they had the power and the authority and the capability to do the job. Why couldn't they do it? Because they are a faithless and twisted group of people. They are no better than the physicians who back in chapter 8, verse 43, could not help the woman that was hemorrhaging for 12 years. They're powerless because they're faithless. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 41 that they are faithless and twisted, he is quoting Deuteronomy 32. 1,500 years before, God said the same thing about the whole nation of Israel. So Jesus is saying, you're just like your parents and you're just like the surrounding culture. There's been no change. You're a carbon copy of the world. They don't exercise faith in Jesus and they're not faithful to the nature of his kingdom. On these two counts, they fail miserably. Now, like I said, our job tonight is to let Scripture probe our heart. We've all got to ask the question, does this illustrate your life? Do you go straight from powerful worship services, a great time of prayer, a great spiritual conversation, a mountaintop experience of your spiritual life to turn around and fail miserably? Are there ways in which you are failing right now to trust in Jesus? Are there ways that you are failing right now to live out the nature of God's kingdom? Does your attitude and your value system and your reaction look just like the surrounding culture? That's the first of the four scenes. And in the next scene, we see the disciples are not only faithless and twisted, they are prideful and disobedient. The second half of verse 43 through verse 45, the crowds are speechless. They can't believe what Jesus has just done. It says, and they were all astonished at the majesty of God, but while. In other words, you've got to read what follows in light of what just In the middle of their astonishment, the crowds are going crazy. Jesus 
turns on the disciples. While they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus looked the disciples dead in the eye and he said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That first phrase, let these words sink into your ears. He is referencing a story he told back in chapter 8. Look in chapter 8 at verse 10. Jesus tells a very famous story, a parable, a story meant to teach something called the parable of the soils. And he says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones long on the ones long on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but These have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So, Back to chapter 9, when Jesus says in 944, let these words sink into your ears, he's saying, be very careful here. You need to be good soil. You need to let these words, these words I'm about to tell you, this is God's word. This is the seed. Let it sink. Let it go all the way down. Don't let it sit on the surface where Satan steals it. Don't let it go just an inch into the soil where it doesn't get any root. Let it go all the way down. And not only is Jesus telling the disciples that, but Luke, the author, is telling you and me to evaluate the response of the disciples against the matrices of that parable. We need to match up their response to those seeds. So Jesus urges the disciples to deeply internalize his words, to hear them and to understand them. But they don't. Look at verse 45. They do not understand. And the result, the meaning is concealed from them. And the result of that, they cannot perceive it. Now, here's the critical question. What does Luke mean when he says it was concealed from them? Who's the cause of them not having access? Who is the concealer? What is the concealer? Now, some people say this is a divine passive. A divine passive is like... um, There's a famous part of Scripture, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's no subject to the comforting. A divine passive is when you don't name it and you mean by it, God. God will comfort them. That's a divine passive. So God, the divine, is doing the comforting. Some people say this is a divine passive. God is concealing it from them. Let me show you why that's not the best way to read this. In fact, you miss the scandalous heart of this passage. It's critical that you realize the fault, the concealer. It's the disciples themselves. Let me show you. Chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. 
But for others, I speak in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So in other words, just like in the preceding little scene where the disciples had the power to cast out a demon, it said that in 9 verse 1, right here we see they had the ability to understand. We see that in chapter 8 verse 10. So once again, the disciples are being held up as spiritually bankrupt. They had the ability to hear and understand and know the secrets of the kingdom. And furthermore, when Jesus commands them, let these words sink into your ears, into your hearts, the implication is they can sink. You can hear. You can understand. So what is the cause of the concealment? Just like in the Seen with the demonized boy? It's their fault. God has given them what they need, but here's the challenging part of this. Even when God works in your life and gives you everything you need, you can act in such a way that you shut your heart off to God. Now look at the last phrase of verse 45. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this. They declined to discuss the subject further because of their fear. Now, the last time we learned about their fear was in chapter 8, verse 25, when Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled. This is not the fear of awe and respect. This is the fear of skepticism and doubt. They are not only totally uncomprehending of what Jesus is saying, they make no attempts to understand it. Why? Because they're afraid. What are they afraid of? That's the critical question. What are they afraid of? Once again, the answer is devastating. Their behavior throughout tonight's passage indicates they are afraid of hearing Jesus say more about this thing they don't want to hear about. They are afraid of where this is going. They are afraid of what Jesus is saying. And so how do they avoid it? They don't even ask. They won't even go there. This shows that they are defying verse 35, where God himself says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And they're refusing to listen to him. They're refusing to understand him. So just like the story about the soils, immediately... Because they do not receive the word, because they do not ask questions, because they do not pursue understanding, immediately the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe it. Now, this is the devastating truth that we must all embrace right at the heart of Lent. When we pridefully disobey and resist God, the, reper- the repercussions are catastrophic. It opens the door for Satan to come into our life and to steal the word from us so that we will misunderstand God and we lose the ability to see what he's doing, to perceive him and to understand what he's up to. And we end up acting out of fear, which leads to further disobedience. 
Now, if it stopped there, we should just all fall on our face. But it gets so much worse. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Do you see the spiraling effect? Is this not devastating? This this is awful. Now, here's what you need to know. That word argument, this book was originally Luke written in Greek. And Luke uses a word there for argument that he only uses with the enemies of God throughout his book. The men who killed Jesus. That's devastating. In other words, do you see this? In the first scene, they're faithless and twisted. In the second scene, they're prideful and fearful and disobedient. And this leads to them becoming the enemies of Jesus. This this is overwhelming. What a terrible spiral. What a despicable exposure of their heart. And look at the subject of the argument they're having. This is absolutely straight out of the Greco-Roman culture. It proves that they are failing to embody in their relationships with one another the heart of Jesus' message. They are arguing about greatness and rank and position and status and prestige and power. This is all about ambition. When Jesus told him just a few verses before to follow me, you have to die to all of that. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. This They don't get it. Why? Because they refuse to get it. They are culpable. Luke is holding them up as responsible. And Jesus goes right for the jugular. He doesn't overlook this. He strikes right down at the root of the disciples' heart. He loves them enough To confront them. So he takes a child. Where did this child come from? He could not have been far. A child right in their midst. Is it the child Jesus just healed? He takes this child and look what it says. He put him by his side. In an oriental culture. He gave that child the position of honor. He did with the child what the disciples were arguing for the privilege of having done to them. Who's the greatest? Who gets to be at the side of Jesus? Proxemics. It's the study of how people stand in relation to one another and how that displays power structures within a culture. Oriental proxemics. Jesus just did with a child what no one did in that culture with the child. Gave him honor. And then he makes a pronouncement that undermines everything that the Greco-Roman world would have taken for granted with regard to the issue of status. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all, this one is the greatest. Now, I don't have time to dig into the particulars of this scene, but I want you to see the progression. First scene, they have no faith in Jesus and they're twisted. The second scene, they pridefully refuse to listen to Jesus. The third scene, their pride breaks open in full view in the fruits of the flesh. Pride, ambition, arrogance. 
And it positions the disciples as the opponents of Jesus. This takes us right to the heart of our own need for repentance. Our lives are filled with these same patterns of behavior. And what Luke is trying to do is show you that sin is a powerful force that will destroy your life. When Jesus rebukes the disciples as faithless and twisted, he is naming the depths of sin. And when we refuse to trust him and to listen to him, this behavior can only produce such ugly fruit that it will position us as the enemies of God. And then it gets even worse. Verse, the last two verses. Look at the first two words. John answered. This is John's response to the teaching Jesus just gave. And what is his response? Holy cow. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. You see the irony here? This unnamed exorcist is working in the name of Jesus. What did Jesus say in verse 48? Whoever receives this child in my name. John quotes Jesus' teaching, not even understanding that it qualifies this guy as doing it right. And then the irony is even greater. This guy has been successful in doing what? Casting out a demon. What was the first thing the disciples failed at? Casting out a demon. This is John's response. Do you see how he's clueless? Do you see that he's on an entirely different map? Do you see that Luke is holding up the disciples as absolutely uncomprehending of anything Jesus is saying? The disciples are so far from embracing and accepting Jesus' teaching. And this is exactly what pride and disobedience does to you and me. It will make us this blatantly off the map without a clue. That's what Luke is showing us. He's he's showing us that this path blinds you to God's nature. We end up confusing our own agenda for God's and it produces the fruit of becoming an enemy of God and an enemy of anyone who works for God. The disciples have become God's enemy. And it's not just the disciples. This is us. We must repent. Lent is the long, slow period of listening for the voice of God to reveal the darkness that is in your heart. Because if it doesn't get revealed and repented of, my brother and my sister, you and I will end up in the exact same place as the disciples. This preparation for Easter 
It's got to start here. It has got to start with letting God shatter our hearts over our sin. It's got to start there. Now, it can't stay there. Scripture says there is a sorrow that leads unto godliness. It's the sorrow that leads to repentance. But the sorrow that doesn't make it through to repentance leads to death, Scripture says. But look, there is no repentance without beginning in sorrow. That's this week. That's where we've got to sit. That's what we've got to receive from God. And when we receive the sorrow, when we look at our sin and we recognize it makes us faithless and twisted and unbelieving and disobedient and blind and the enemies of God, when we see that's who we really are and we embrace that all the way down inside, then we see that repentance is a gift. Oh, it's a gift. It's the gift that leads to life. We don't do that. In the rush of our lives, we so frequently ignore and overlook and excuse our sins. White lie. Devil made me do it. I'm just a human. Remember the first scene? Jesus with the demonized child. Here's the hope. If you would embrace the sorrow. Jesus is greater even than your evil. That's the hope. When you stare into the full length mirror. And you are devastated. Please know. The Christ who is showing you that. Restored that boy to health. And he will restore you and me. There is no reason. For sin to prevail when Jesus offers himself. He is stronger than evil. When we do not trust him, that is wickedness. When we are prideful, that is wickedness. When we disobey Jesus, it is wickedness. When we refuse to accept his word deep into our lives, when we refuse to accept his view of, the, of what life is really like, and we refuse to live off of that template, it is wickedness. And when we oppose his work in the world, it is wickedness. Now, here's, here's the shocking news. Up to this point in Luke... It's been all about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, the camera lens turns on the disciples and it's, it's ugly. The very next verse, Luke 9, 51, is the hinge for the book of Luke. It says, and Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from Luke 9, 51, all the way through to what's called the triumphal entry, Luke chapter 19, where Jesus heads into Jerusalem, from Luke 9, 51 to Luke 19, 22 and following, that's called the travel narrative. It's, it's not a geographic straight shot, but it is a spiritual travel. It's a journey of Jesus heading. To, and you know what it's all about? Why is Luke ravaging the disciples? Why is he showing us the disciples in such ugly Technicolor detail. He's showing us that they desperately need to be formed into the image of Christ in order to become the people who in part two of Luke's book, Acts, 
actually carry on Jesus' ministry. Here's what I'm saying. The depth of sin in our heart cannot be solved in an instant. It requires the long, slow journey to Easter with Jesus. And it will take you doing that every year for the rest of your life. Because your sin, it's not a behavior spurt. It is your character. It is your nature. It is who you are. And to be changed out of that, we need Christ to form us into his image. And that's a long, slow work. Dallas Willard says the soul changes at an incremental pace. And it doesn't change by accident. So I encourage you. Follow Christ. Into repentance. This is the dark. But necessary journey. Of Lent. Let's pray.